verses 1 through 17, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will also, uh, all, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. We say thanks be to God. Let's practice one more time. Thanks be to God. There we go. All right. Before we jump into all of that, I promise I won't go longer than 35 minutes today, but there's a lot to cover. Just a quick announcement. Retreat. You've heard it enough. I do not want to... Uh, I guilt trip some of you guys to sign up. I think it's great. Uh, but here... So sign-ups have been actually wonderful. We filled all the rooms... I think we may have maybe one or two, one room available. So we need to figure out whether that's going to be a family or a single. But really, the rooms are very limited. So because rooms are limited and because our team, we really want more of you guys to be able to experience the retreat, we have uh, discounted the Saturday prices, right? Uh, for adults, it was like, I think it was like 90000 per adult. And a child per child. It was really expensive for a family. So we, we've lowered it to 60,001 per adults and 20,001 per kid. Saturday passes are available. We have plenty of room and, and, and food. We just don't have enough room for, for lodging, but everything else is plenty. So please come out Saturday. Again, it's going to be a great time to realign, rest, reconnect. And I realize like retreat is such an Asian, maybe Asian American thing. Like I talked to my non Asian American friends, they're like, retreat? adults going away like what is that like it's simply a time for us to get away and, and be able to reconnect rest worship uh we're not gonna have this like packed schedule where it's like one after another it's we're gonna have a lot of different uh slots where you can just relax rest uh get to know each other it's a much more casual environment so i just want to encourage you guys feel free to invite friends sign up does sign ups do end today so today's the last day after today we won't be able to take more people on so that's one announcement. 
All right. Great. Let's moving on. Moving on to Colossians. Uh, if you're just joining us, first of all, welcome. Wonderful to see you. Our church, we've been in this series through the book of Colossians for the last about four or five weeks. We're going to be here for maybe one or two more weeks. Uh, you're, you're catching us in the middle of uh, the book. And really, the book of Colossians is a letter written by a, a man named Paul. Uh, Paul wrote probably more than half of the New Testament. Uh, every Paul's letter, whether it's Romans, whether it's other letters of Paul, epistles, they follow a similar flow of thought. Right? Written by the same guy, similar style. He begins all of his letters with this grand theology, robust theology about the nature of God, what he has done for us, who we are because of his nature. And then in the middle of his letter, somewhere in the middle, there's always a shift from theology to the street, to theology to the street. What I mean is, really, Paul, his ultimate aim, right? Every letter he's written in the New Testament, ultimate aim is not that we grow to be these wonderful scholars of Scripture, which is not a bad thing, but that what we know about God, what we know about God is actually lived out in the way in, in our offices, in our homes, in our in our cars, cars. We drive in so make sure the love of God is, is being lived out as you drive. Right? The street level theology. And really, 1 Corinthians, and Paul's so serious about this. 1 Corinthians 13, a very famous love passage. He says this, he has, a, he has a stern warning for all Christians. And says, those who claim to have great faith or great knowledge about God, yet fail to live them out, he says, we are, they are like a noisy gong or clinging cymbal. When our theology does not impact the way we live, there, there couldn't be a worse way of, of witness, right? We've all had amazing Christian bosses. They were, they were Christian bosses, but they were not amazing in the way they managed us. Or we've all experienced like amazing Christian person and, and the way they've lived out their life was totally inconsistent. And, and that was, you know, really, really harmful in many ways. So, so Paul says in verse Corinthians 13, if we claim to have great faith that can move mountains, but does not love, we are nothing. There's no, there's no use. So really the idea is that our theology, everything that we talk about here on Sundays or small groups or at retreat, we'll have different speakers. They must be lived out. It must be evident in our homes, in our workplaces, in the way we treat others. This is where the rubber meets the road. So really, this is where we are in, in Colossians chapter 3, right? Where Paul begins to connect the dots for us between this amazing supremacy and this, and this sustain, sustaining God. And how does that really relate to people that, that are following him? And he begins chapter 3. If, if you see your Bible in chapter 3, it begins with this transitional phrase, if then. If then. He's saying, if all that I've shared concerning Christ is indeed true, if He's truly supreme, if He's truly all that we need, if He's truly sufficient for our need, and we do not need to turn to systems or ideas or other knowledge or the ways of salvation, then we ought to follow Christ in these ways. And I would like to divide 
chapter 3 into two sections. One category is vices that needs to be put to death, sins that needs to, to, to be, be no longer exist in us. And second part is virtues that need to be cultivated, vices that needs to be put to death, and, and virtues that needs to come alive. Simple enough. So starting the vices, about the vices that needs to be put away. Verse 5, Paul says, put to death. That's his language. Very intense. Kill it. And he begins to talk about in verse 5, all sexual sins. Paul employs four different Greek terms to speak comprehensively of all the sexual sins that was prevalent in that culture. You see, the letter, this was the actual letter in a time of history where in, in that Greek-Roman culture, sexual immorality was rampant, right? It, it's hard to believe. It was probably even more rampant than today at that time. The ancient Greek-Roman world worshipped sexuality and sex outside of marriage was norm. Hiring a prostitute was just part of life. All types of sexual relations were permitted, right? Culturally, especially men, right, were given all types of liberty to pursue all of and any of their sexual desires. It was just nasty. And so Paul stands in that culture knowing that these people have become Christians and he confronts this topic. And, and I'm sure this rocked the church because it made everyone uncomfortable from the leadership to the new, new believer this would have been an earth-shattering earth confrontation about sexuality. So verse 5, he begins, first thing he calls out, he says, put to death pornean, that's the Greek word, where we get the word pornography, which speaks of any sexual activity outside of a covenantal marriage. Did you know that actually pornography, por Pornia literally means any sexual activity outside of marriage. Second word is impurity, which speaks of any type of sinful sexual behaviors. Third word is passion or lust, which is any uncontrolled sexual urges. And the fourth, fourth word literally means desire. Yes, it, it could be neutral meaning of desire, but in this context, Paul is implying wicked, self-serving desires in the area of sex. Again, this, is, this was important because this was rampant not only outside of the church, but in the church. People came to faith, but they were not. They were continuing to live out their old ways of life. And Paul hears this from prison. He says, no, this should not be. And, and this, is not only, this not only was important um, back then, but really... Paul's words here in chapter 3 is just as relevant today, 2,000 years later, because we live in a culture where sex is primarily, primarily about fulfilling personal happiness. This is sort of the, 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 the mantra of current age when it comes to sexuality, right? Because I'm a sexual person, therefore I can use my sexuality in any way that gives me personal satisfaction. And we are told by our culture, media, and, and sort of outside world that we can experiment with our sexuality outside of marriage for our own personal enjoyment. So pornography is no longer consider, 
considered evil. Like when I was growing up, pornography by society was still considered evil. But now, when we see mass media and when we hear people talk about pornography, it's not, it's not so black and white anymore. Not many professors or, or academics would actually claim pornography to be evil. There are tons of data, tons of secular studies that show the, the devastating impact of pornography. People say, yeah, it could be really unhealthy, but when you hear mass media, not many people say pornography is straight up, straight up evil. That's the culture that our children will grow up in. So, so we really have to talk about sex in the church because if we don't talk about it, I think it's easy for, for even us to, to get outside and, and get our understanding of what is, what is sex and what is intimacy and this idea from the outside. So biblically, sex is so much more than fulfilling personal happiness. The Bible does talk about sex and it talks about sex a lot. There's a whole book dated called Song of Solomon, Right? Really, really intense, romantic book. If you want to read something, Song of Solomon, really intense. I'll probably never, never get to teach on it here, but it's, it's a wonderful book about intimacy and, 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 and sex. But biblically, sex is far more than fulfilling personal happiness. It's far more, about, more than about performance or appearance. In fact, the scripture makes it clear that sex is remarkably wonderful. God said it is good, Genesis, and it is also sacred. It's ultimately about seeking that which God has made for us. It's a gift. So first and foremost, sex, I mean, I'll just, we'll have to do a whole series on sexuality and sex, but let me do a quick two-minute overview of biblical understanding of sex. First and foremost, sex is about, is God's design for humanity as a bond between a man and a woman that strengthens over time. It is a way God brings new life into the world. Where do babies come from? Through sex. It is also a wonderful illustration of self-giving love within the life of Trinity. right? The, the life of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and this wonderful intimacy that exists in that Trinity. It's, it's, it's this idea to model that. In fact, biblically, unlike most traditional cultures or religions, sex slash marriage is not a requirement. You realize that? It's not a requirement in Christianity, which is very unique. When you talk about traditional religions and traditional culture, Paul even says in one of his letters, and he, he clarifies, this is not, not the Lord, but I, I love that how Paul clarifies this for us. That Lord didn't say you, don't, you shouldn't get married. I'm saying it because this is my experience. He says singleness can be better for the growth and witness and, and conversion of the church. 1 Corinthians 7. Less distraction, right? You can serve the Lord. Singleness is a viable way of life. A man singles in our church? Maybe no man? Not yet. Another sermon at another time. But it is a viable way of life. But again, that's another sermon for another day. Back to our passage, Paul hits the nail on the head when it comes to sexual sins. In our text, all sexual sins are not simply a behavior problem. Paul says it very clearly, but they reflect much more devastating reality in each of us. It's really the sin of idolatry. He says it in verse 5. It is greed, covetousness, which is in form of idolatry. 
it's the problem not only of our behavior, but it's the problem of the heart. It's a problem of worship. That's what's at stake. And Paul says, when you and I dig deep enough into our failures in this particular area of life, it is issue of worship. It's making good things into the ultimate things, things that which cannot bring what we are hoping to receive from them. And this is why Paul says, put them to death. Any kind of sexual sin or enticement or any of these temptations, put them to death. Otherwise, verse 6, it says, it will destroy you. Unless you destroy it, it will destroy you. The wrath of God is coming. So Paul uses the word necro, necro. Everyone say necro which is to modify, to kill, to murder. It literally means to cut off all lines of supply. And James, the other writer, book of James, spells this out for us more clearly when it comes to sin. He says, James says, this is how sin works. James chapter 1, verse 14. But when each of you is tempted, you are dragged away by your own evil desires and enticed. And after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And so James and Paul, they're saying the same thing. This is how sin works. Unless we kill it from the very beginning, unless we are intentional, about fighting the temptation from the very beginning, we're not going to win. Because we're going to be enticed, and we're going to desire, a desire is conceived, and once the desire, desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin to death. Illustration, I'll give you an example. I love American chips. They're still very salty, but I love American chips. Anyone, American chips? Out of all the chips... I love Doritos. Anybody Dorito, Dorito fans? I love Doritos. I mean, I, you, you got me, Doritos. Um, this, is what it, this is what it looks like if you eat too many Doritos. So good, but so terrible for you. I mean, it's probably all chemical. No, no real cheese in that, in that thing. So not too long ago, we had a couple from church that came over to have dinner at our house, and they were nice enough I don't, I, don't know, I don't know why they thought maybe I look like I like chips. They brought us two giant, like, American grocery bags of snacks. Like Doritos, like chocolate, like beef jerky. I'm like, whoa, this is, like, awesome. Awesome, but terrible, right? And this included a giant bag of Doritos, like American-sized Doritos, right? As soon as I saw that bag, I told myself, because I'm trying to get in, I'm trying to be mindful of what I eat. I, I really am, right? So I told myself, I saw that bag, I said, okay, Lois, I'm going to stay away from that bag. Keep that bag away from me, right? Do not open the bag when I'm around. Do not show me the bag. Put it away somewhere. Because I knew deep down inside of my heart when that bag entered my apartment, it was game over for me. I knew it was going to happen, right? It took less than a week for me to finish off the bag myself. I literally like opened it. I finished in like three days. This is a giant bag. This is 2,000 calories. I looked at it. It was, it was so good, but so terrible. This is why I never buy Doritos on my own. Because when I go to Costco, I see Doritos. They're like amazing. But because I know if it's somewhere in my house, I'm going to get to it somehow. I know I have no self-control when there are Doritos in my house. In the same way, it's, it's funny, but in the same way, we need to be much more vigilant about lust, 
sexual sins. Or maybe even if, if you have problem with greed, if you have problem with money, spending money, whatever those things are, but because we're talking about sexual sin, I think this really applies. Don't let Doritos in the house. If you know you're going to struggle, if you know you can't control, when that bag entered my house, it was like, it's game over. I'm lying to myself. Lord, let's put it away. I'm going to find it. It's like a game, right? And really, Paul and James, what they're saying is, don't even let these bags in the house. Really kill it from the beginning. Modify it. Don't take these things lightly. A look, an account, or, or an article, or a movie, or whatever. If you know you're going to fall, if you know it's going to get you, make sure you play offense from the very beginning. That's what Paul's saying, to kill it. Very serious about sin and sexual sin, for sure, because of their context. The second thing we ought to put to death, uh, Paul, Paul talks about this. The first thing is sexual sins, which was very relevant to the people at the time and relevant to us. Second thing is verses 8 to 11. And really, you got to kind of study the text to understand what he's really getting at. Is, is, it seems like attitude or approach, uh, the way we, we respond but when you look at the text from verses 8 to 11, it's really talking about the ways we approach other people, the, we, the ways we do relationships. Because if you read verses 8 to 11 within its context, verse 11 is sort of like, why is verse 11 there? You are not Greek, Jew, slave, free. Like that didn't really fit. But I realized as I was doing the study, all that Paul is talking about, the things that we ought to put on, things that we ought to put off and put on, they're really, he's talking about it in the relationship context. Otherwise, verse 11 would not make sense. In the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its image of its creator, Paul says, there's not Greek, Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, and, and so on. You see these distinctions of race and religion and class and caste, which was a very important at the time of the letter, they were the very things that often caused people at the time to respond in anger, wrath, malice, and slander. Many Greeks at the time of the letter regarded them, themselves as a member of a superior group. They had that passport. They had that thing where, where everybody had to look, look up to them and they had special rules around them. And they enjoyed great privileges and power, you know, following the conquest of Alexander the Great, right? And so, 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 so there was that division in the church. People came to church and said, I'm going in the front, you sit in the back. You get my car, park my car. You serve me. I'm a Greek. Yet Paul says, your identity in Christ, your new self, is far more superior than any of your earthly identity. Which means in Christ, this whole passage in Christ, the differences of background and nationality and color and language and social standing must be regarded as irrelevant to the question of love, honor, and respect that are shown to individuals and groups. Yet I know it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. It's living as an American in this city Amongst Koreans, I feel like, oh, for some odd reason, I feel superior. Oh, I can speak English. Oh, I don't have to do the rat race of Koreans. I mean, there is arrogance. It, it's subtle. I'm not going to tell anyone, oh, you know, I have an American passport. But, but there is this 
subtle temptation to feel like we're better than the other person. Even in the church, uh, I'll be really honest, even I've, I've served in enough churches where I've seen there's always an it group in the church, the cool group, the group that you want to be in, group that you're not invited, right? Like that, whether it's like singles or, or married couple, there's that cool group and everybody wants to get in, but you're just outside looking in. Because naturally, we want to get to know people that are like us, that are from the same social class, same stage of life, same level of success. People really are less willing to invite those that are different from us because it's uncomfortable. Let's be honest. We like people that are like us. So if, if, if we're not careful, we can end up categorizing people. Like, I do this, and I really have to fight this desire to categorize people, people who gives me life versus people who drains life out of me, people who help, people who need help, people who are influential, people who are not. I mean, it's easy. Even as a pastor, as you walk in for me to scan you and say, okay, you are going to be helpful. You're not going to be helpful. You're, gonna, you're someone I want to get to know. You're someone maybe I don't want. I mean, let's, this is... A, old ways of living this is how life works and we and paul is really speaking against that if if everything i've shared about christ is true then the way not only anger or wrath but it's really the way we treat people that are different from us and, and, and paul says in christ we are to break down these barriers we are to be inviting we are to be people we are to see people as God sees them, which is, which is not easy. So verse 12, now we've, we've talked about things that we need to kill. Now we're moving on to the things that we need to put on. And really, verse 12, the list of things that Paul talks about is a counter list from the things that he just mentioned of take off to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are the things that that Paul is calling us to cultivate as followers of Jesus. And Paul uses this imagery, right? When, when he says put on, it's about like putting on a clothes, putting on a new garment. And he says put on a garment of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The word compassion in, in the original language is this deep sensitivity to the needs and the sorrows of others. Which doesn't happen much in, in Korea because we're so busy. Right? Kindness points out God's own goodness. Really, the kindness that Paul's talking about is God's own goodness. In fact, Galatians 5.22 tells us kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Only a result of fullness of God in human life, we can have true kindness. Humility, this was a tricky one for the original audience because for people... In that culture, for the Greeks, the idea of humility was always seen as a sign of being a coward or weak. So much so it was nearly impossible to denote the word, the humility in the Greek language. There was no word to actually fit what it means to be truly humble. Yet Paul, so Paul has to qualify. Paul says, just as Christ has shown us his humility through his incarnation and through his cross, we ought to lay down our lives for others. So it's not being a coward. It's not weakness. Only truly strong person can be humble and meek. 
Same thing with meekness. Many assume meekness to be a sign of weakness in our culture as well. And if you think about truly meek people in your life, not people that are just quiet or people that are afraid to speak up, but if you really think about people that are meek in your life, they're actually really strong and confident. Only a strong and confident person can truly be meek. Meek in the way they treat others. Fifth and the final garment is patience. Long-suffering in the face of insult or injury. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit as well. It, it means more than just enduring difficulties or passively, passive resignation to the circumstance. Well, things bad are going to happen. Well, I can't help it. That's not long-suffering. That's not patience. Patience is placing our trust in God despite the difficult circumstances that are facing us. What is facing you today? Perhaps work issue, family issue, health issue, financial issue, relational issue. Perhaps you, you don't like your job. Perhaps you don't like your spouse. Perhaps you don't like where you are in life. Well, we need patience. And not just saying, oh, what can we do? We don't like our lives. What can we do? No, it's saying, God, I still trust you. Despite what's happening, despite what I'm facing, despite the challenges and difficulties and hardships, and despite maybe you may feel like you're being accused and you're innocent, we say we trust. Because, God, we know you're, you're still in control. And verse 13, bearing with each other, he continues on, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Again, it's all about cultivating relationships. And in fact, with each challenge in verse 12, the level of difficulty increases. You notice that? It's much easier to show compassion to someone who's in need so much harder to forgive someone who has done you wrong. Right? It, it gets increasingly difficult. And, 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 and if we're really honest, these, these are extreme, extremely challenging ways to approach relationship. It's really hard to practice compassion, hard to practice forgiveness, even with can I be honest? My own kids. Yesterday, when I was with my two girls, I did not do this. I failed at showing compassion. I, I failed at forgiving my daughter for, for dropping water for the fifth time. I wanted to flip out. It's tough even with people that we, like our kids that we love more than ourselves. So how are we to do this with people that we don't like? People that annoy us, people that make our lives difficult. That's tough. That seems impossible. Like if, if Jesus showed up in my dream and Jesus said, Simon, you got to forgive these, these people. I'll say, I can forgive probably three. I can't do the, the last two. Uh, I'll be honest, Jesus, I don't know if I could do that. It's hard. It's hard until we realize these virtues we have already received or we have already experienced them through Jesus. 
See, Paul is not asking us to do anything that Jesus has not modeled for us. You see, Jesus had compassion on each of us when we did not deserve it. Jesus was kind to us when we were not kind to ourselves and others. Jesus, it's his humility, his meekness, his patience that have qualified us, that have invited us, who are not invited. You see, none of the ways that Paul encourages you and I to live has not been modeled by Jesus Christ himself. And friends, this is the gospel. It is the compassion of God himself, that very compassion and kindness that have entered creation. And in his humility, God the Son took on the brutal death on our behalf. The one without sin became sin for us. It's his meekness and patience that are even transforming us now as we struggle with these things that Paul mentions to put to death. And as wonderful as these virtues are, the wonderful, the, the more wonderful or, or the better news is that they're not the ones that save us. If you notice verse 12, look with me in verse 12. Paul doesn't say these virtues are what makes you and I God's chosen ones. That's not what Paul says. You see, God's chosen ones, the title is already given even before none of these, any of these virtues are mentioned by Paul. Which, honestly, I don't know about you, but that encourages me because when I'm reading this, like if I'm really reading this and I have to preach this to you guys and I think about, man, anger and wrath and things that I still carry, it's encouraging because I know I'm not there yet. This is not a picture of who I am. Because I know I still struggle with anger when I drive, when someone makes me upset. I know I struggle with sizing people up. You know, these people I like, these people I don't like so much. Struggle with showing compassion. All of these things I still struggle. And I'm sure you're still struggling. Yet this is not what defines us. This is not what makes us God's chosen people. If you look at verse 12, Paul says, you are God's chosen people, therefore, begin to cultivate these things. Those are not the things that save us. It's easy for us to read this passage and like, well, these are the ways we can come to God and we can receive salvation. No. It's His gospel. It's His compassion. It's His kindness, His humility, His meekness, His patience, His forgiveness that has begun this journey for us. And so I want to encourage us as we read this passage, remember, we're on a journey. None of us have arrived to the other side. But He's with us, His Spirit, and as we remain in Him. I didn't get to the final part of verse 17, but basically what Paul is saying at the end is, come to church, people. Go to church, meet with other people, sing songs, Listen to the, the word, be in community. I, I didn't want to do another 10 minutes, so I'm just telling you that's a one way, guys, we could cultivate this kind of attitude as well. But again, coming to church will not save you. Okay? It's Jesus. And we come to church because we have been invited by Jesus and his goodness. 
And that, that his goodness is what transforms you and I to want to live this way. Sounds similar, but it's very different. And we need to remember that as we, as we approach passages like this. Amen? I'm so hot. Let's pray. <laughs> I am burning. Jesus, we thank you for your compassion. Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. Jesus, we thank you for the way you have forgiven us. We deserve none of it. We deserve none of these wonderful things. Yet because of what you have done and because how you see us and how you have invited us, we get to dream again. We get to think to think again. And Father, um, we pray for restoration in, in, in our community. Uh, if anyone is struggling with any of these sexual sins, if anyone is struggling with addictions, with lust, with greed, with jealousy, Lord, would you have compassion on us? Would you convict us once again? Would you speak to us once again to know Lord, there is forgiveness in you. There's freedom in you. There's compassion in you. There's kindness in you. Thank you, Jesus, for these promises. Thank you for the reality that we are your chosen people despite uh, being in the process. We love you. We thank you. Just let me pray. Amen.